Good morning. If you would please take your, your Bibles and open up once again to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue our study, Beholding Our Lord, Beholding Christ, here this morning. If you remember, if you were here with us last week, we started off, I started off by laying the foundation for this series from a, a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18, I want to read that once again here as we start. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Beholding Christ, not a mental practice, but a work of the Spirit as we gaze, as we behold the Spirit conforms and transforms. As we focus our attention once again here this morning through God's Word on Christ, we are in that process of gradually being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. This is not something we can achieve. This is not something we can accomplish apart from the work of the Spirit, not by following the law, not by earning something with our merit, because we have none, but is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this will be the work, as we talked about last week, of how we hold fast, how we stand firm, how we love Christ, live for Him, how we are effective as witnesses in this world to make disciples of Christ. The church is always in danger of tolerating sin, ideology, philosophy, even to the point of adopting those ideologies and philosophies. The philosophy of the day is always making an impression on the church, pulling us away from the Word, the Gospel, and in fact, Christ Himself. The deceiver, the world, and even our own flesh wants to gaze at other things. Other things grab our attention even. So this morning, once again, as we continue on in, in Colossians, we are going to behold Christ again because that is what we need. That's what our families need. That's what our marriages need. That's what we need is to behold Christ. And in response to these false teachings, which we'll talk about a little bit more in this letter, uh, Paul is emphasizing throughout this letter the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. We already looked at some of that last week in Paul's prayer, in Paul's thanksgiving. He was ultimately thanking God for His work, just as Pastor Andrew said this morning. This is why we come, because the work of God in our life. And Paul was thankful to the Lord because he saw God working in this church through the gospel which they had heard. And then he also prays, rooted in Christ, rooted in the gospel, that that gospel would continue to do its work in the church. It started with prayer in this letter, this series as we walk through Colossians, hitting the high points it's rooted in prayer, it's rooted in Christ, it's rooted in the gospel. And last week I suggested some prayers, in fact, to pray 
for ourselves, of course, but also for one another. I was praying for our growth and our understanding of the Word. As we come to it, we need our eyes opened. We, first of all, need to be inclined even to His Word, and then we need to fear God's name alone. It would have been a great moment for me to to give an advertisement for life groups which we're looking to relaunch in the fall, but I know that it needs to happen even now. We can't wait until the fall to pray for one another. But as we look forward to the fall, as we talk about more and more in these coming weeks and months about life groups, what a great opportunity for us to come together as the body of Christ, praying, having meaningful relationships where we can go to the throne and pray for one another in these ways, that we would behold Christ. So before we move on into a very important passage, which we do not have time to go through all of it, verses 15 through 20, at least, of chapter 1 in Colossians, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day when we can come here. We thank you for your word, your truth, your truth that you give us by grace, that we can look into Christ again, that we can behold him. And I I do pray that right now, even, you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, to your word, that you would open up our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things about Christ. And as you do that, will you teach us your way, that you would move us along this path of walking in your truth as you unite our heart to fear your name alone. Holy Spirit, will you do your work even right now as we look at your word, bring us to Christ, that we may behold him, that we see wonderful things in him, we would understand his worth and his value as the only one who deserves worship and praise, and that is eternally deserving of worship and praise. Lord, do your work through your word for your body, for your name's sake, in Christ's name. Amen. Some more context to this epistle. Uh, I haven't even mentioned this, and I won't be able to mention it much even right now. This is a, a prison epistle of Paul's. He is writing from prison, from Rome, around the year 60, 62 A.D., to the church in Colossae. Uh, Colossae was one of the main three cities, uh, Ephesus, Laodicea, Colossae, in this Lycus Valley, about 100 miles east of Ephesus, the capital. Uh, A meeting point, a trading route it would become, which is very conducive to a few things. Of course, to goods moving back and forth, but also for philosophies ideologies, heresies even, to move back and forth with a mixture of people's ideologies and philosophies, religious traditions, speculations, myths, very easily could be passed along at these crossroads, a very fertile ground. And it would seem that these false teachers, most believing that this was the the groundwork of the Gnosticism that we know of, of Um, really the catchphrase is to know. These teachers declared themselves as in the know when it came to deeper things of God. They were spiritual aristocrats, if you will, uh, boasting in pretension to special knowledge for elite. Uh, Philosophically, very much extra 
biblical, worship of angels, uh, believing in multitude of uh, emanations from God, messengers, mediators, whether through angels or whatever, but stressing exclusively special privilege and perfection of those who would belong to this philosophical elite. It would come to flat out deny the deity of Christ, and that's why Paul writes this letter. Following his mention of the kingdom of the beloved son in verse 13 that we probably skimmed right over last week, but as we were transferred out of darkness, transferred into this kingdom of the beloved son, it leads us to a very poetic section in verses 15 through 20, uh, Paul's description of Christ, all-encompassing supremacy, undergirding this scope and power of the reign of the gospel that he prayed about, that he was thankful about, to those who have been redeemed and brought into this kingdom. So why does Paul break out in such high praise at this point with a high Christology of who Christ is? He is concerned. And I'm going to read a a verse at the end of this passage, and then we're going to go backwards and look at this passage because I think this sets this for us of why is he so concerned and why does he bring this high Christology in at this point in the letter? Verse 21, starting in verse 21 of chapter 1, and then we're going to look back at verses 15 through 20. There it reads, And you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. And notice who does that work. It's him. He's the one who presents you holy from a holiness, a righteousness apart from you, outside of you. It can't happen from us because we are not holy and righteous. But then he goes on to say, if indeed you do what? You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which he talks about in, verse one, in chapter 1 earlier, which has been proclaimed to you also, but then he says, in all creation under, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, considering the philosophy of the day, the storm that is brewing uh, for them and for us, I believe we can ask three questions of this Christological passage in verses 15 through 20, from this verse, especially verse 23. How will we continue in the faith? How will we remain stable and steadfast? And how will we guard ourselves from shifting from the hope of the gospel? The world, the deceiver, Our flesh itself is trying to shift us away from this hope that we see in the gospel. And the universal supremacy of Christ matches the universal scope and reach of the gospel, which he's already talked about in his prayer, mentioned in verse 6 of chapter 1, bearing fruit and increasing since the day they believed and also in the world. Paul here is going to assure them of the sufficiency of Christ as seen in his supremacy. He draws the church to do what? To gaze at Christ. 
In fact, to be overcome by the wonders of his power, his reign, to see and grasp his supremacy. Why? Just as he prayed for them in order to walk, to live, to be conformed, and to endure. The stress of the day, the philosophical, the ideology that was coming at them with these false teachers, that Christ would be the preeminent one, our center, our treasure, the one to which we surrender and worship, even when the fiery darts are flying over our heads, or even when the fiery darts are aimed right at our forehead, that Christ would be the preeminent one. As an outline, we'll, we'll walk through this here. I want to see, I want you to just see some structure here of just these passages, these verse 15 through 20. Uh, a very rhythmic divide here of two units, talking about, of course, going back to verse 13, God's beloved Son. Paul is going to mention first an affirmation in verse 15. Who is, who is the image of the invisible God? It's usually he, I think, in, in the ESV and some other translations, but it could be translated, who is, speaking of the beloved Son, the image of the invisible God. He provides then, verse 16 and 17, different information. He provides an explanation for, by him all things were created, and so on. We're, we'll look at that. But after this first affirmation, after the explanation, then he repeats the affirmation. He is before all things. And then verse 18, as he shifts topic from creation to the church, he's going to affirm again in verse 18, a second affirmation that, and he is, he this time quickly repeats that affirmation with who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and then he explains in verses 19 and 20, because for in him all the fullness of God was pleased. So these two divisions quite simply in these poetic units, demonstrate a parallel between the creation of all things and the church in relationship to his authority and his reign. So Christ's supremacy over his creation, he is head, he is supreme over his creation, and then Christ's supremacy over his church in verses 18 and 20. So, first of all, Christ's supremacy over his creation. In the philosophy of the day, of course, we've mentioned this, Jesus is just one of many emanations. Uh, There are other beings, angelic, that were given by God through which men could reach God. They could obtain knowledge. They could find rescue, deliverance, and transformation. Uh, It's very hard for us to find in Scriptures another paragraph that contains a more concentrated Christology than this one. So as we walk through this, let's just highlight what Paul does here to show his supremacy over his creation. First of all, in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Christ is not an emanation. He is not like the angels. He is not one of many mediators. He is the only one. He is God himself, image representation, manifestation fully, the very form, the copy of God himself. 
We're familiar with Hebrews 1.3, where the, the author says the exact image, in fact, the exact image, the representation of the Father. In Jesus' own words, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. Christ, the, the only Son, has made the Father known. Paul uses this same phrase in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age does not want the lost to see that Jesus is deity. He's blinding them from seeing this light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Image is the very substance, the essential embodiment of someone. And Christ, in this passage, is the exact representation of the Father because he does things, accomplishes things, that only God can accomplish. So Paul sees in Jesus the, the dwelling place of the divine wisdom, the eminent presence of the transcendent God, the visible image of the invisible God. He's going to go on here in verse 15 to say that he is also the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn trips us up, doesn't it? It has tripped up many in church history, in fact. All the way from the first century, second century, adoptionism grew to believe that Jesus is not eternal. Arianism in the fourth century, Nestorianism in the fifth century, all saying that, no, he was created. And of course, today, Jehovah Witnesses Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon doctrine is he is a created being. Firstborn over all creation, of course, the Greek can actually mean firstborn chronologically, as in created, as in had an origin. But most often the word means preeminence in position or rank, and context has to drive the meaning. First in importance, rank, supreme, and he will go on in these following verses to show that there is no doubt that he is eternal because he created all things. One who has created all things cannot be created. Context drives the meaning. Uh, Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, promising of a messianic ruler, says this, uh, eighty-nine twenty-seven. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the king's of the earth. Hebrew parallelism, make him firstborn, means he is the highest of the kings on the earth. Highest in what? Rank, authority, position, preeminence. The most exalted king. The false teachers thought that Jesus was created. Physical, therefore, could not be from God. Physical, therefore, evil, could not be flesh, as that false doctrine, that false heresy, uh, the heresy that would grow from this Gnosticism, flesh is evil, therefore God could not come in the flesh. He is the first, firstborn, though, of all creation, preeminent in position and rank. He'll follow this with verse 16, for by or in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him 
and for him. This is the grounds of his supremacy over creation that Paul gives here. Created and sustains everything. With clearly three prepositional phrases, Christ's role in creation is in or by him. This is the means of Christ as the acting agent. Through him, the instrument of creation. And then for him, the purpose to glorify him. In verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, not created, but before all that was created. And by him everything came to be, and by him everything sustained. All things in place owe their existence to him. Everything we know, seen and unseen, owe their existence to Christ. His supremacy over creation. The one who is lauded as the Lord of creation in these verses is now celebrated as the Lord of recreation. In a way, in verses 18 through 20, the church. Whose head is Christ, the new or second Adam. So secondly, Christ's supremacy over the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the church. Paul anchors Christ's cosmic supremacy in salvation history, to his lordship over the church. The image of the invisible God entered the plane of human experience in order to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by means of his humiliating death. He is the firstborn from the dead, verse 18. He was the first fruits of those who die. Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 23. He says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Our destiny is bound to the destiny of Christ. Unlike others, he rose never to die again. And Paul brings this headship, lordship over the church to a summary for emphasis in verse 18. Why is he supreme over creation? Why is he supreme over the church? He says in verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. As a result of his death and resurrection of his creation, that Jesus has come to have first place in everything. Paul wants to drive home this point as forcefully as he can that Jesus is not merely another emanation from God, one of many in a list of, of mediators. That God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. As Paul says in Philippians, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How worthy is he? All those in heaven, all those on the earth, and all those under the earth. Talk about comprehensive. For you, for me, for all of creation, he is the worthy one. And every knee should bow in humble worship. 
Every knee should acknowledge him as Lord. That everything would have centering preeminence is on Christ. This is Paul's emphasis in verse 18. As he moves out of verse 18, he he sums up in this way in verse 19. He says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. The false teachers believe that Christ is not the fullness of God because we have to look for more information, other information, more mysterious information that has yet to be obtained. But here Paul says, no, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things. Again, whether on earth or in heaven, comprehensive, making peace by the blood of Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of God. Countering again the false teachers, Christ is full, not a partial embodiment of God. Christ is fully God and fully pleasing to the Father. Of course, in the Old Testament, many times we would see this, that God chooses places uh, for his name to dwell, uh, expressing his divine care over his people. He particularly chose to dwell on Zion. Uh, he also fills the whole cre- part, part of creation, heaven and earth. But here, as Paul gets to verse 19, in only Christ, God pl- is pleased to, to fully dwell in him permanently. This is no longer a temporary filling, a, a temporary presence on Zion or in the heaven and the, and the earth, but here in Christ, his fullness to maximum extent is in Christ. Christ supplants the temple, any other house that could be made to represent God in person. He supplants all of that, and he is fully God, and that is pleasing to him. Uh, the, the, the commentator F.F. F. Bruce says that all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, and his glory are disclosed in Christ. All the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, and his glory are disclosed in Christ. Christ's supremacy over his creation. Christ's supremacy over his church. Together they affirm that the creator of all things in heaven and earth is the one that was redeeming, keeping the believers in Colossae. And as I said, the question that we would all have to ask then is, how will we continue in the faith? How will we remain stable, steadfast in the philosophy of the day? How will we guard against shifting from the hope of the gospel. The level of our worship, the level of our love for Christ, the level of our surrender to Christ, the level even of our joyful obedience is very closely connected and correlated to the level of our beholding of Christ. Because as we behold Christ, as we gaze on Him, that's where the Spirit transforms us and conforms us. It is the Lord who does that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
By beholding Christ, the Spirit transforms us. So our question, very serious question of the day is, what are we beholding? Where are we looking? In whom are you trusting? If it's self, then that's a false reign. You don't belong on that throne. If you're trusting in yourself, it's a house of cards. That will crumble very quickly. Where are you? What are you beholding? Where are you looking? In whom are you trusting? And how are you shifting from the hope of the gospel? These are very serious, grounded questions that we would have to ask after reading this high Christology passage in Colossians 1. People of every age are looking to, to, to knowledge somewhere other than God. People of every age have looked to knowledge outside of Christ, outside of God's Word. People of every age are always denying the sufficiency of Christ, always denying the worth of Christ. Instead, we're filling that up with self-worth self-existence, self-sustaining mentalities that I can do it by myself. But the only center, the only one who is preeminent, the only one who deserves prominence even, it's Christ. That belongs to Him. And Paul here tells the church, gaze on Him. Behold Christ. Everything you have is in Him. Everything that you need is in him. Everything, in fact, that you see and know is because of him. It came into existence through him and it is sustained by him. We would be in danger if we think that Jesus is just the means to getting a goal. Jesus, maybe he's the way to heaven. We use that language. He's the way to forgiveness. He's the way to even a better life, peace, or even health. But Christ is the means, but he's also the end. He is the fullest and deepest revelation of God. To see him is to see the Father. To be known by him is to be known by the Father. He's not just a means to getting to something He is the means to bringing us to himself and his glory through the cross, through his resurrection. He is our eternal treasure. As Revelation 21 says, the glory of God will give light to the new Jerusalem and it has a single lamp. Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Christ is the means and the end, because His glory will radiate eternally. No need for a sun, no need for a moon. The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is singular. It's the Lamb. 
His power, His authority is not corrupted, not distorted, not tainted. As we come to this Christ, it is power and authority that is backed by goodness. Goodness in character. Goodness in His righteousness. Goodness in His mercy. His power and authority is not distorted, not corrupted, not tainted. This Christ deserves preeminence. He should be the center because of who He is. Supreme over creation. Supreme over the church. And we're to behold Him. And this morning, as we come, on this day that is the Lord's table, communion, the Lord's supper, He is at the center. We come because of Him. We come to worship Him We come to set him in that position of preeminence. I pray that this morning as we briefly went through these few verses, there's so much here to unpack in these verses 15 through 20, that Christ would reign in us. That we would come to that place of surrendering everything to him. Worshiping him completely and fully, and that can only happen by the Holy Spirit as He works in us. I I would be wrong if I'm standing up here and telling you to do something other than gazing at Christ, the finished work of Christ. And as we come, this table is all about the finished work of Christ, the perfect life of Christ that was lived to complete the law, to fulfill the law, and then He takes on even the penalty of the transgressors who could not keep the law, you and I. This table is the center of our worship because it's reflecting, it's pointing to Christ and His completed work, His perfect righteousness. So as we go to that table, let me pray, and then we'll transition to celebrating and worshiping Him through these elements before us. Father, I thank you for your power, your authority, which is not distorted nor corrupted nor tainted, but it's perfect, and you are the fullest and deepest revelation of God. You are not just a means to getting to heaven, not just a means of being forgiven, But you're the means to us getting you, being drawn to the Father, being in your family, so that we can walk with you, gaze upon you without any other things to distract us or tear us away from you. But Father, I pray that this morning each one of us would ask those questions How will we continue? How will we remain stable? Steadfast, how will we guard from being from shifting from the hope of Christ? Will you, by your spirit, help us to behold you, to gaze on you and trust you as you sit on that throne? Lord, may your name be glorified. You are worthy of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.